0: You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events.
0: So um, welcome to Intelligent Talk. We're here with my friend Alan Packwood of the Churchill Archives to discuss uh, Winston Churchill. And Alan, thank you for coming on the program, and welcome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So Alan, um, may I ask you, I believe when we spoke last, or in an email, you said you had just written a book, um, How Winston Waged War, was that what it was called? Ah, well,
2: you're giving me an excellent advertising opportunity here. Um, I am in the process of writing the book at the moment, um, and uh, I'm hoping that it will come out sometime next year. But the working title is indeed How Winston Waged War, and the idea of the book is that it looks in detail at some of the key decisions that Winston Churchill took during the Second World War um, and tries to to get away um, from... uh, the speeches and some of the things that he wrote, um, and to focus in on on the actual detail of those uh, those decisions, so that you're, you're getting an idea of what was coming across Churchill's desk, what was he seeing, how was he responding to it.
0: Okay, excellent. And the second, I just wanted to ask you, too, um, could you just explain what exactly the Churchill Archives is, please? Because I find that most people in the United States don't well, know really what I'm, it is. I'm l- lucky enough to be the director
2: of the Churchill Archive Centre, which is based at Churchill College, Cambridge. Um, it was The college was built as the National and Commonwealth Memorial to Sir Winston Churchill. Um, and the Archive Centre then is um, really a, both a repository for his papers and a research institute, um, really, for people to come in and to, uh, and to use the material to further education and research. The Churchill papers are the personal archive of Sir Winston Churchill, uh, which, as you can imagine, an enormous collection. You're talking two and a half thousand boxes, about a million items, everything from his childhood letters and school reports through to his final writings, correspondence with friends and family um, alongside... telegrams um, with American presidents um, and the notes for his great speeches and broadcasts. So Churchill papers are a huge resource, not just for the study of Churchill, but really for for the study of um, the the 20th century. And then around Churchill, we have gathered the papers of many of his contemporaries and successors. So we hold the personal archives of Margaret Thatcher, but also now of John Major and Gordon Brown has just pledged his. So I, I like to say, particularly to American audiences, that we're the equivalent of four American presidential libraries. But in fact, we have the papers of some 660 individuals, politicians, diplomats, military leaders, and scientists of the Churchill era and beyond.
0: Well, that's, and as I understand, was American money one of the primary funders of the Churchill archives back in the 60s? Absolutely. Um, So, when the Archive Centre came to be built, um, which was in the
2: late 60s, early 70s, um, what Churchill College did was to cross the Atlantic, engage with a number of your countrymen who were known to be Anglophile, were known to be great admirers of Sir Winston Churchill. Many of them were former American ambassadors to, to the United Kingdom. And to get to those individuals, to group together to fund the bricks and mortar and the dedicated endowments for an archive centre. So actually the first thing that you see when you come into the Churchill Archive Centre um, is a wall on, on which you have names of all of these individuals, Geffen, Harriman, Annenberg, Kennedy, and so on. So we really are the American memorial on site to Sir Winston Churchill and we're very proud to be so and we're, we're very grateful um, that that support was forthcoming, um, because it, it allowed the archive Center to be created, and everything that we've been
0: able to do with the Churchill Papers and the other collections since then stems from that touch of philanthropy and generosity. And Alan, do you, do you want to give your, your website, if you like, so people could could find out more about the Churchill Archives, if they so choose? I mean just type Churchill Archive Centre into your web browser
2: um, and it should take you straight through um, to, to our website um, and there you'll see information on how to contact the Archive Centre if you want to to ask us questions about the collections but you'll also see information about the various um, collections.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you for that. So I just want to turn out to obviously the subject of our program today, which of course is Winston Churchill. And I'll just start with some basic information, obviously, because you're the expert and I'm just catching up. Churchill, his mother was, was American. Is that correct? Um, Churchill was um, half American um, by birth, absolutely
2: correct. Um, his mother was Jenny Jerome, um, who was born in Brooklyn, um, New York. And after a lightning courtship, she married Lord Randolph Churchill, who was the younger son of the Duke of Marlborough. Um, So Churchill, um, half American by birth, um, uh, which allowed him famously to remark when he addressed um, the joint houses of Congress just after Pearl Harbor um, that if his um, mother um, had been British um, um, and his father um, American instead of the other way around, he might have got there on his own.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a wonderful quote. I like his quote, Lady Astor, you are ugly and I'm I'm drunk and in the morning I shall be sober I think but um, who I, I think I think was the first female member of parliament but so anyway so yeah. so we had that early background and of course Churchill went to the military academy and, and chose a career in the military correct well, I mean the interesting thing- he wasn't felt to be intelligent
2: enough for university Um, this is someone who goes on to be Prime Minister of his nation twice and to win the Nobel Prize for literature for his writings Um, but actually his performance at school was not particularly brilliant. Um, In fact, his behaviour was pretty awful. Um, We have his school reports um, here in the archives from his first school, St. George's School in Ascot, which was a strict Victorian boarding school. And Churchill, being a stubborn, willful, rebellious child, refused to fall in with school ways. So you have these wonderful reports in which the headmaster says things like, conduct has been exceedingly bad. He cannot be trusted to behave himself anywhere. What's interesting is if you Look closely at the reports, the sort of teachers and the headmaster are grudgingly admitting that, in spite of this, he has good abilities and that if he tried, he might be top of the class. So, I think the ability was probably there, but it was latent. He refused to fall in with school ways, um, consequently, not considered bright enough to go to
1: university, um, and it was decided um, that he was going to have a career in the army. It
2: actually took him three attempts to get into um, the officer training school at Sandhurst, but once in the army, Um, um, and after the early death of his father he was determined to launch himself on the world stage Um, and that's when um, he he basically um, goes through a phase of seeking fame and seeking fortune by trying to get himself transferred to as many dangerous spots around the world as possible um, to get himself noticed um, and then writing about his exploits Um, so um, he he comes under fire around the time of his 21st birthday in Cuba. He charges with the 21st Lancers um, against the dervishes in the Sudan in 1898. He fights on the Indian Northwest frontier um, in valleys of sort of Pakistan and Afghanistan, valleys that are still being fought over to this day. Um, and um, most famously, um, Escapes from Boer captivity when he's covering the Boer War as a war correspondent in 1899, Um, and that escape was reported around the world, and on the back of it, um, he's able to successfully enter the British Parliament.
0: He wrote a book from London to Ladysmith about that. I believe that escape Was that correct? He did. Um, I, mean, he, I mean, he started by writing newspaper articles about his military adventures. but the
2: problem was because he was a serving officer, um, the newspapers wouldn't let him put his name to many of these articles, so they were described as being by our special correspondent or by our own correspondent, and that's not what he wanted. He'd already decided that he wasn't going to stay in the army, that he wanted to go into politics, so he needed to make a name for himself. So um, he uses the newspaper articles to make money, but he then publishes these exploits as books. So he writes a book, um, The River War, about the campaign in the Sudan, the Malakam Field Force, about India, and he was able to claim that by the time he was 25, he'd already written more books than Moses
0: (laughs) <laughs> i i read that was the last charge last major charge a british empire did when they did that charge in sudan is it do you have any it's certainly one of the last one i mean last. i think there are cavalry charges and engagements um
2: in the first world war but it was a a, a really dramatic moment um, um the 21st Lancers charge across the field and uh, what they or across the desert um, and what they fail to appreciate is that there's actually a dip in the land in front of them in which all of these dervish warriors are crouching and hiding and the horsemen suddenly find themselves surrounded and taking heavy casualties and Churchill credited his survival on that day to the fact that he had injured his shoulder which meant
0: that he wasn't charging with his sword drawn like Um, Many of his fellow officers, Um, but it was actually uh, had his revolver, and so
2: was able to shoot his way out. Um, But what it illustrates, of course, was you know he was someone who had served in the army and had definitely seen
0: action. Do you have any idea where that where his tremendous courage came from, Alan? Where it was just in 88, or did he force himself to be courageous?
2: I I think he forced himself to be courageous. Um, there are some quite interesting quotes in his early letters back to his um, mother um, when he's serving in the army. Um, and you know, in one of them, he talks about how he'd ridden his white pony along the skirmish line, coming under fire. Um, but that, you know, he played for high stakes, um, and without the gallery, things are different. So this was all part of a strategy. This was a strategy about getting himself noticed and launching himself Um, so I I mean yes he is brave but it's bravery with a
1: purpose, Um, bravery
2: tied to to youthful ambition Um, and it's similar in a way with his oratory Um, I don't think that public speaking came naturally to him either he was really first and foremost a writer Um, but he's someone um, who forces himself to, to, to learn the skills of oratory and of course becomes very
0: effective, it? Okay, so let me just take you to then his, when he serves in a high government position. What was his first big government position prior to first Sea Lord of the Admiralty in World War I? Um, do you remember what... Okay, okay. well... Um, Well, I mean, he
2: he, he enters Parliament as a Conservative, because his father had been a a, a Conservative. Um, But actually, he breaks with the Conservative Party because he's a free trader and the Conservatives are moving towards protectionism. So he crosses the the floor of the House of Commons um, and joins the Liberal Party, and he rises rapidly through the Liberal ranks. He becomes Under-Secretary of State for Colonies, but then he's brought into the Cabinet in 1908 as President of the Board of Trade, Uh, 1908 being a very year for him because it's also the year that he marries um, Clementine Churchill. Um, But from there he becomes Home Secretary, so that's the Minister in Charge of British Domestic Affairs, and then First Lord of the Admiralty, the the Minister in Charge of the Navy um, by the time that the First World War breaks out. So already, you know, by the age of 40, he's already held the succession of very senior government
0: offices, and he's already established himself as a very prominent and controversial character. Now, Alan, uh, as you know, of course, better than myself, uh, his one of the things he's he's not in, held in high regard for is the Gallipoli campaign in World War One. And when you read Martin Gilbert, he says, "Well, the plan was not executed as to the way Churchill had wanted." And people say, "Well, the boats didn't go far enough or bomb enough on before they uh, loaded the troops on the Gallipoli Peninsula." Do you have any thoughts as to his, his both his thoughts on, on execution of that and the general idea to try to force Turkey out of the war and, and go through the Gallipoli? Well, I mean, the general
2: concept um, is a sort of a great Churchillian idea and, uh, and it's this idea that you've got this terrible stalemate on the, on the western front right. which is bleeding the western armies um, and so he um, was looking around for a way to, to, um, to sort of to try and alleviate that he was also I think as first lord of the Admiralty looking for a way to constructively use the navy and bring the navy um, into in the fight um, and looking around the world uh, obviously um, he he fixed on on the Dardanelles, um, and he wasn't the only one to be to be advocating this. But the idea was that um, you send a fleet through the Dardanelles strait, um, and you then besiege um, Istanbul. Um, he would probably have called it Constantinople. Um, you knock Turkey out, out of the war, um, opening up a, 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 a second front to relieve the pressure on the Russians. It's a wonderful, great concept. Um, the problem was, of course, that they simply didn't have the the resources to deliver it properly. Um, they didn't have um, the ships of the right calibre caliber to be able to clear the minefields and, and break through. Um, they underestimated the, the, the likely Turkish opposition, in fact, found that they couldn't get past the Turkish port, thereby necessitating landings on, on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, and they underestimated both the terrain and the enemy that they would encounter um, in Gallipoli. There were all sorts of reasons why the operation failed, problems of coordination between the army and the navy, the problems of coordination between the various different nations, uh, allied nations that are involved um, in the exercise. Um, and I think, it, you know, it, you, you can't blame any one individual, but as the leading advocate of this operation in cabinet, um, it was obvious that Churchill was going to have to take um, a certain amount of, of, of the political blame. Um, not least, of course, because Asquith, who's the Prime Minister, is having to restructure um, his government in response to this crisis um, and he's having to bring in the Conservatives, and the Conservatives at that point don't want to forgive Churchill um, for having crossed the floor and um, joined the Liberals, and so the price of their inclusion in the government is that uh, Churchill be sacked as First Lord of the Admiralty. So you've got all of these military and political factors coming together. I certainly don't think that, that Churchill should be exonerated completely um, from the Dardanelles. I think, you know, it was a noble enterprise that went wrong for lots of different reasons and he must take the blame um, for some of those. I think it was, you know, something that he then spent an awful lot of time trying to defend, um, his multi-volume history of the First World War. Um, two volumes of it really are devoted to a defense of the Dardanelles operation. And it was something that haunted him and which could have could have wrecked his career at that point. Um, and the amazing thing I think about Churchill is his resilience and his ability to bounce back from these setbacks. Um, in this case, of course, what he does is to resign from the government and to go and spend six months commanding a battalion on the
0: western front. Yes, it's, it's amazing uh, that he would, would at such high-level government position, would go back into such a relatively low role and, and and do that as maybe a sort of a penance for what he felt as far as the Gallipoli operation, or at least... Yeah, I think so. But well, I think
2: um, I, I think not so much as penance, because I mean he, yeah, I mean he was certainly prepared to defend what he'd done um, over the Dardanelles. Um, but I think he saw it as a as, as a matter of honour that um, he, what he didn't want was um, to sit around doing nothing. Um, Asquith had made him um, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which was very much a sinecure position. So he'd gone from having been at the centre of things, being able to command this great navy, and. Um, dominate these operations. Um, suddenly having nothing to do. And people talk about Churchill's black dog, black dog of depression. My own take on that is that that black dog only ever really appears um, when Churchill has power taken away from him. He's at his happiest when he's at the centre of the fray. Um, but. You know, when he loses office over the Dardanelles or when he loses the general election in 1945 or when he retires in 1955, um, it's at those moments that he, that he deflates, uh, and it's at those moments that perhaps
0: the black dog appears. And I, th- I, I think Paul Reed would agree with you. He took over from William Manchester and finished, as you know, the third volume, and he essentially disagreed with Manchester and it would agree with you on that. But just so after post-Gallipoli, after he does the fighting, Churchill obviously has been hurt by World War One, by the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, he's sort of in the wilderness, as they say. And um, as we come upon the 1930s, he's very prescient in recognizing Hitler. Do you think part of that was that he was sort of someone who was a fan of an empire himself and sort of recognized to some degree what Hitler was because he liked having an empire to a degree? Would that... Uh, I think where, where you're perhaps right is that he was a great student of
2: history. Um, you know, history had always been one of Churchill's passions. It's one of the few things that um, um, his early teachers thought that he was good at. Um, he has always studied it, and he's also written about it. Um, he, he wrote a, a biography of his illustrious ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough. And the interesting thing about Marlborough, of course, is that he had led a, a coalition army against the European spot. Um, and Churchill is writing that biography as Hitler um, starts to dominate Germany um, and then Europe. So I think he, he you know, he's, he's very aware of um, these sorts of historical trends. Um, he is very interested in Defense matters, and very, very concerned about defense matters. Um, so I think he sees in Hitler um, um, very quickly, in a way that perhaps other people don't, um, someone who can can destabilize Europe and destabilize Europe very quickly, and, and you know, plunges, plunge everyone back into war. Um, what 's interesting, of course, is that Churchill had been a great opponent of communism um, um, from the moment that you have the russian Revolution um, and he opposed it. He famously describes the um, arrival of lenin in the field train into Russia as being like the importation of a plague bacillus <laughs> um, and he 's a virulent virulent anti communist um, but unlike many of his contemporaries, um, he sees that Hitler is perhaps the bigger risk to European stability
0: um, than, than Lenin and then Stalin. Of course, he argued he um, was in favor of intervening in the Civil War in Russia, I believe, in support of the whites. and I Yes, he was. And um, so he's, he's Secretary of State for War at the end of the First World War, um, and he's very keen to try and keep um, British troops in the field supporting the the, the white Russians. And, of course, um, I, I believe he says to, says to Stalin when he sees them when, when when the war has been cranked up and their allies, he said, will you ever forgive me something like that when he sees Stalin I don't think he would have ever asked for Stalin's forgiveness, oh. but I mean, he's, he's, he's fairly honest about it. Um, there's a wonderful quote um, that he's supposed to have made to, um, to his secretary, Jock Colville, on the
2: croquet lawn that, um, um, I think, it is it Ditchley Park or Chequers? Um, I can't remember which now, but one of these sort of stately houses. When... Um, when russia uh, when germany invades russia and russia is drawn um into the war um and churchill decides well britain's actually going to to support Russia, he's going to speak and say that they're going to materially aid Russia and do everything they can to support her against this invasion. And his private secretary Colville teases
1: him about this, knowing you know what an anti-communist he had been. And Churchill's response is to say that if Hitler invaded hell, he would at least make a favourable reference
2: to the devil in the
0: House of Commons. That's a that's a wonderful quote, Alan. Yes, I be, before I get to his his amazing decisions, um, and of course the, the World War II and all the drama and the decisions that he made. I just want want to ask you that there's been a bit of a reassessment of chamberlain there's a book that came out called the most <clears throat> the most dangerous enemy that essentially said and i think alex Cadogan, i may have his name wrong who was deputy <clears throat> foreign minister basically said yes we were against appeasement with hitler but there was nothing we could do the raf was not ready we had uh, demobilized our troops we were in a weak position so while Churchill was prescient and and was brilliant at recognizing the threat there wasn't much that the argument goes: if you read that, that, that they were smart to, to a degree to appease him, and I really wasn't controversial until after Munich, in order to build up England's defences, which of course would later help Churchill when he took power. Do you, do you do you subscribe to that argument at all?
2: Well, I mean, I think history is always more nuanced um, um, than it is portrayed, perhaps um, in you know in the movies and things where you need good guys and bad guys, um, and you know there is there is certainly something in this Churchill was lucky I think in many ways to be in the wilderness um, in the 1930s if he'd been brought back into the government earlier by Prime Minister Baldwin or then by Prime Minister Chamberlain um, then there was a danger of course that he would have been tarred by the appeasement brush um, as well Um, but I mean it's always a matter of um, scale in these things and I think you know Churchill's view was clearly um, that we were not doing as much as we should or could, um, and certainly he felt that um, you know Munich was a was a huge betrayal, and and spoke out very forcibly against that in the House of Commons in a broadcast um, to, to the United States um, at that point. And of course it was after Munich, as you said, um, as you know Hitler then reneged on his promises and swallows up the rest of Czechoslovakia. It's at that point that public opinion and the press move decisively behind Churchill uh, and, and away from Chamberlain. Um, but it's certainly true that the British government um, were definitely playing catch-up during the, the 1930s. And Churchill, I think, when he spoke at Chamberlain's funeral, uh, or it's a memorial, sorry, when he spoke at Ch- Ch- Chamberlain's memorial service, um, you know, he made the point um, that, you know, that... that what Chamberlain had done was to show um, that we were, we were not
0: warmongers. We had done everything possible to preserve the peace before right. going to war. So, so now I just want to take you sort of the beginning stages of, of World War II. Uh, Chamberlain's government would fall, and, and Churchill would become prime minister after Lord Halifax refuses, based largely on the Norwegian operation, which Churchill was obviously heavily involved in the attempt to basically stop Hitler to get iron ore from Sweden and the, and the ports in Norway. Um, and, and some people think that operation was not well planned. And Of course, it, uh, what, what is your opinion on the on the Norway operation <laughs> in the beginning? I think, I mean, I'm no expert on the
2: Norway operation per se, but my my take on the Norway operation would be, I mean, it clearly... It wasn't particularly well planned and, 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 and coordinated, um, and you know we were outmaneuvered, outsmarted um, by the Germans, who actually were able to move into Scandinavia um, far more quickly and far more effectively um, than we had anticipated. And the operation um, in Norway, um, you know, clearly highlights you know several weaknesses in terms of um, military and political coordination um, in this country. Um, And the irony, of course, is that Churchill is one of the the people who is um, leading the direction of that operation, having been brought back into the government by Chamberlain as um, First Lord of the Admiralty. Um, And so, you know, it's something, again, that that, that could have damaged him. But the prevailing view in the British Parliament um, is that the blame is really with Chamberlain um, um, for not not being uh, uh not being sufficiently engaged um, in, in, in the war not providing effective leadership from the top, and that part of the problem that Churchill is encountering um, is that um he has to will to fight, um, but he doesn't really have control of mechanisms. Um,
0: um, And and so the decision, of course, when Chamberlain falls is is to give Churchill that opportunity to give him that control. And I'm sorry, I'll just have to interject. We're going to have a quick break and we'll resume in one minute.
1: Night falls and towns become circuit boards We can beat the sun as long as we keep moving From the air, stadium lights stand out like flares And all I know is that you're sat here right next to me We rarely see warning signs in the air we breathe Right now I feel each and every fragment the trail leads right back to you You say you need me to step outside You spend the evening unpacking books from boxes You pass me up so as not to break a promise Scattered polaroids and sprinkled words around your collar in the long run You said you knew that this would happen It turns out it was borrowed too Why does every letdown Have to be so thin Rain explodes At the moment that the cab door closed I feel the weight upon your kiss Ambiguous You have to leave I appreciate that But I hate when conversation Slips out of our grasp You spend the in books and boxes, you passed me up so as not to break a promise Scattered all the rides and sprinkled words around your collar in the long run You said you knew that this would happen Two bodies in four. As a matter of fact, it wasn't built to last Two bodies in motion, this is a matter of fact, it wasn't built to last You spent the evening unpacking books from boxes You passed me up so as not to break a promise Scattered polaroids and sprinkle words around your collar in the long run You said you knew that this would happen Just to write after all, after all. The pounding rain continued its bleak fall. We decided just to write after all.
0: Okay, so so we're back now, Um, we're here with my friend Alan Packwood of the Churchill Archives. It's interesting because if Lord Halifax had accepted the prime ministership, he probably would have been prime minister and not Churchill. Is that correct? After the Norwegian operation? It is. Um, So the biggest um, party in the British Parliament is the
2: Conservative Party party in the House of Commons um, and the Prime Minister is normally drawn from the ranks of the um, the largest party. Um, Halifax would have been the choice of most of the Conservative Party. Um, Churchill is a Conservative again by this point, um, having returned to the Conservative fold in 1924, um, famously announcing that anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenuity to re-rat. <laughs> but there are large sections of his Uh, own party, then, who haven't forgiven him for that, Um, and who see him as a maverick, who see him as an opportunist. There are um, many voices within the British establishment, within the corridors of Whitehall, who are sceptical about Churchill, because of episodes in his past, like the Dardanelles, who see him, perhaps, as as, as rash. and question his judgment. So, uh, you know, he isn't the natural choice of his own party. He's not the natural choice of the establishment. He comes to prominence because Chamberlain can no longer um, command the dominance of the House of Commons um, because there is pressure to form a national coalition government um, and because the Labour and Liberal parties won't serve under um, Chamberlain anymore. Um, but if they would agreed to serve under Halifax, um, then Halifax could quite easily have become Prime Minister. He declines to do so because he is in the House of Lords, not the House of Commons, um, and he doesn't believe he can effectively um, lead a war premiership. Um, from from the House of Lords. Um, he may also have been waiting
0: to see um, how things turned out under Churchill, uh, yes. um, perhaps with a view of, of stepping in at a later date. And
2: it's certainly true that Halifax and Churchill's approaches um, are quite different. Churchill keeps Halifax on as his Foreign Secretary, um, and as Foreign Secretary, um, Halifax... Um, Proposes um, that they seek some form of uh, mediation with Hitler, possibly through Mussolini, who, at least at this stage in, in May 1940, is still technically neutral, though of course fearing heavily towards Hitler. Um, so they, the suggestion is that um, they might seek terms through Mussolini. And there are actually three days of quite tense discussion in the British War Cabinet um, before it's decided um, um, that. Churchill's view will prevail and that we will attempt to fight on alone if
0: necessary after the fall of France. And I'm sure you're aware that there's also criticism. There's a a book that came out years ago called The End of Glory and other books that basically said England should have made a deal with Hitler and therefore their empire would have been preserved. But of course, uh, I'm sure Churchill would say it, anyone, I think Farrell would say, well, it wasn't worth what the paper was written on to have any kind of agreement with Hitler. So there was no choice but to stand and fight. I'm sure that... (laughs) Yeah, so my take on that is, I mean, that book is written
2: by John Charmley. It's actually a very good book, and I I would recommend that people go and read it. Um, But I think it has the advantage of being written with the benefit of hindsight. Um, I mean, the the argument is, of course, that um, if we'd have stayed out of the war, that we'd have been able to preserve our empire, um, and that um, Hitler would have turned against um, um, Russia. Um, Those... Two dictators, uh, Hitler and Stalin, um, would have fought it out uh, and perhaps destroyed each other. Um, but I mean, what you have to remember is that what Churchill was dealing with, or the situation that Churchill was dealing with in, in 1940, was very different from that. Um, um, Hitler and Stalin were actually allies at this point, um, or at least had a non aggression pact in place, the Molotov um, Ribbentrop Pact. Um, so it was not at all clear that, that Hitler was going to turn. Against um, Stalin, and there was every possibility, you know, that, that once he'd swallowed up France, that he would then turn against Britain, um, regardless of anything um, that, that he promised. Um, and of course, you know, Churchill's view was that we needed to make a stand, and it was only
0: by making a stand that we would be able to draw in the United States. In a way, Churchill, and to a degree, it was irrational to have such confidence in England given what they were facing in a way that that's really probably is his finest hours that people say that he could inspire the nation and that they would never surrender and that they were going to fight on. And also in that book that the Paul Reed book, it talks about how Hitler's plans for England, if they had conquered England, they were going to bring the same type of action squads that they used in Russia into England to kill people. It would have just been a uh, we could assume a brutal occupation if it, had, if it had ever occurred. But I just want to ask you about the basic conduct of the war. Um, I mean, obviously, Hitler intervened a lot, as you know, with his generals, and that was considered a strategically a terrible mistake. Uh, Churchill was more laissez-faire. He had a bunch of ideas. I, I think he advocated taking a lot of the RAF planes and supporting France as France was falling, and Air Marshal Doubting basically convinced him not to do it. Is that your understanding of that preserving the RAF to later fight? Well, it is. I mean, not just Air Marshal Dowding, who
2: obviously had very strong views on that, but also the other British um, chiefs of staff as well, um, uh, the chief of the air staff and others. Um, I mean, uh, Churchill was stuck in an awful dilemma at that point. I mean, if you look, he becomes prime minister on the 10th of May 1940, which is the day that Hitler launches his British League offensive against um, France and the Low Countries. No one would have predicted on the 10th of May that France would fall so quickly and so completely, and that the um, French army and the British Expeditionary Force would be so sort of decisively routed um, and forced into retreat from from the beaches of Dunkirk. Um, So, you know, this is a a very rapidly moving situation, and and it's a huge military and political crisis. And Churchill has to win um, really are two arguments. He has to win the political argument within the British War Cabinet that actually we are going to fight on and that we're not going to seek some form of terms. Um, and um, then, you know, there is this huge sort of military argument about how are we going to respond to this crisis? You know, and naturally your instinct in the first few days and weeks is to pump resources into France um, and to try and do everything you can um, to, um, to to to. to Staunch the retreat, and uh, you know to hold a line. Um, that the problem that he faces is, is, is judging that tipping point at which point it becomes more sensible to concentrate and hold your resources back in reserve for the defence of Britain. And that really comes about at the, about the, the same time as the political crisis. It's the it's the end of May um, 1940. when they're faced with these decisions, you know, as the troops start to be evacuated from Dunkirk, um, and the British Chiefs staff actually produced a paper for Churchill, I think round about the 26th of May, um, uh, which uh, about whether or not it will be possible for Britain to fight on without an army if France falls and they can't evacuate the British Expeditionary Force from Dunkirk. And the conclusion that they reach is that it will be possible as long as Britain has air superiority. Um, and as long as civilian morale holds, and as long as the Royal Navy is there um, um, to defend the channel, as long as you've got those three things in place, it will be possible to, to, to resist an invasion. And of course, as soon as you've got that sort of information coming from your chiefs of staff, um, then it no longer becomes about pumping resources into France. It becomes about trying to preserve everything you've got for the fight that's about
0: to come. Got it. Well, I, I I just want I want to cover as much as I can. Just this is, this is a general strategy. People have said that uh, Churchill and the English strategy in World War Two was kind of like the traditional British strategy, like towards Napoleon which is basically avoid headlong major confrontational battles sort of be on the periphery kind of like MacArthur where it's just hit them where they're not which is the, the Pacific campaign for MacArthur and then that's why Churchill of course resisted uh, an invasion of France until June well until later on until 44 when he thought that they were ready and they would try to take Hitler on in various areas which is not sort of like in um, against Napoleon when they were fighting in Spain is, is that your understanding that kind of strategy that yes it is, I think and, uh, and you know and I would remind in America audience
2: on this, of course, that, that America doesn't come into the conflict in Western Europe until, and you quite understandably, until after after Pearl Harbor and after the, the attack by the Japanese. Um, and that means, of course, that Churchill's really got no choice in the in the early years of the war. Um, Hitler is dominating um, Western Europe. Um, we are not strong enough um, to attempt um, to fight on the continent at that point or to, to take Hitler on directly in France. Um, so we're going to have to fight elsewhere. What options are open to us at that point? And the, the two main options are the bombing of Germany. So developing a, a bombing force to um, to take it back to, to, to Germany um, and to respond to the bombing of Britain. Um, and the other area where we can fight and where we have significant forces is in the Mediterranean, um, because of course. Churchill is certainly thinking in terms of not just defending um, the United Kingdom, but also of um, defending the entire empire. And he would see the Mediterranean as a crucial point um, there, because, of course, um, if we lose control of the Mediterranean, then we have lost contact with our, with our empire in the Far East. Um, we... Um, our, our, our reputation, our prestige are on the world stage have diminished, um, Spain and BC France are more likely to, to come into the war um, as active participants on, on the Axis side. So the only options really that are open to him in 1940 and 41, before the German attack on the Soviet Union and before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, are to take the fight to the enemy in the Mediterranean, in the North African deserts, where we have the forces to do it. So that means we've already embarked on that policy before the United States comes into the war. Um, uh, Then once America is in the war, Yes, again, ultimately, um, it makes sense to take on um, uh, Germany in in northwestern Europe and and to launch an invasion of France, but you can't do that straight away. It's going to take time to build up um, the necessary forces. And while you're doing that, Churchill's view is you need to be taking the fight to the enemy, you need to be weakening the enemy, you need to be supporting uh, or to be seen to be doing something while the Russians are fighting on the eastern front. Um, You need to be doing something um, um, to show the Balkan powers like Turkey that that, you, that you're still fighting, um, and so um, that you know that what, that's what leads him to commit to this this Mediterranean peripheral strategy. And he certainly didn't believe in putting all our eggs in one basket. Um, and of course, the big fear was that if we did that, and that if the attempt to to liberate France failed, uh, if we were pushed off those um, D-Day beaches. Um, then everything would stall. Um, the United States might turn back to, to face the Japanese in the, in the Pacific. Stalin might reach some sort of compromise on, on, on the Eastern Front, and Hitler would be left in possession of Central and, Europe.
0: And Al, do, do you agree with me that one of, the most, one of the most brilliant things Churchill did, and may not have even known it at the time, was by uh, accidentally a german bomber as you know accidentally bombed london he used that to basically bomb berlin and that really caused a seminal shift because the luftwaffe then what hitler being angry then the luftwaffe being upset obviously they focused on bombing london ex- almost exclusively and ignored the raf airfields which were almost Totally destroyed, and that really gave England a tremendous life that otherwise probably wouldn't have occurred if if they just focused on continuing to bomb the fields. And that was all because of just Churchill's gumption and his flair, if you will, uh, to to bomb uh, Germany when they were in such a weak position. Do you agree with that? Um, Yeah, I don't know whether he could have
2: um, predicted that it would result in a change of tactics on on Hitler's part. Um, But certainly, um, he was determined to take the fight back to the enemy. I mean, I think, you know, one of the Characteristics of Churchill um, is that he's not someone who ever wanted to sit on the defensive. He's no. someone who who wants to attack, who wants to take the fight to the enemy. So if there's going to be an opportunity to do that, he will. And of course, in his history of the Second World War, he famously recounts how he, he went out, um, goes out to see the bomb damage in London, and he's he's worried about how the 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 citizens are going to respond to, to his presence, um, and they sort of swarm around his car, but then um, they cheer him, and what they say to him is, give it him back. Um, and so, you know, his, his, view, his answer would be that he was implementing the will of the people in
0: that respect. Exactly. Yeah. Unlike Hitler, he was out there expecting the bomb damage and rallying the people. I would say, um, in, in addition to, um, to bombing Germany and obviously causing that counter-reaction, um, another thing which Churchill did, which was controversial, and of course I'd like to give you the opportunity to comment, is taking the forces from North Africa when Rommel, well, some people thought that, that they could have pushed on and defeated Rommel, and, and supporting Greece, and that was a controversial decision. Was it? Is it your view that's kind of like in France where you had to support um, someone who was g- going to fall, and they, it was a move that should have been done, or what's your view on the Greece operation?
2: I think you know when you look at the contemporary um minutes and records for these things um you can see that these are incredibly complex difficult decisions um you know being taken by you know a small group of Churchill and his chiefs of staff they they didn't really know um what was going to happen um I think you know they felt that Britain had made an undertaking to Greece, um, um, and that they needed, you know, that you know, the honourable thing to do um, was to do something in Greece. But Churchill sent out his foreign secretary and um, the, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, the head of the army. Um, to visit Greece, um, and it was on their advice that it was worth trying this and worth seeing that they, you know, that there might be a chance of, of stopping the Germans there. That they decide to go into Greece, um, but of course, I mean, you're right. It's, it's 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 a complete disaster, and there are many who've said that as a result of that, um, they lost um, the impetus in North Africa. Um, but in North Africa, of course, they had been at that up until that point um, largely fighting the Italians, um, and of course, what they didn't know was that, that Rommel and German forces were about to arrive, and that also changed the the dynamic on that side as well. Um, so you know, would they have been able to get much further in,
0: in North Africa? I mean, you know I don't know. People have said that uh, when America starts to aid England with Len Lees and those old destroyers that we sent over, that for Churchill, it wasn't really so much important to get the old destroyers, but it was the idea of just slowly Getting America more committed, and that was his strategy to bring Roosevelt in. And Roosevelt obviously was very reluctant because the American people did not want to get involved in another war. You had Lindbergh and mm-hmm. Father Coughlin. Is that is that? Do you think Churchill handled that relationship very skillfully in, in terms of uh, bringing Roosevelt in and and getting um, American commitment behind England to the ex- extent that he could? Um.
2: Uh, yes, I mean I think uh, what's a, another famous quote in the Colville diaries, isn't it, that uh, no no lover ever paid um, uh, such uh, such attention, such close attention um, <laughs> um, as, as I did to the whims of President Roosevelt. Um, and you know he went out of his way to, to court Roosevelt because I think you know although he felt you know that, that Britain might be able to to resist invasion um, and to withstand the onslaught in the short term. In the long term um, the only way in which we were going to have the resources, the finance, the men, the material to win the war um, was if the United States um, came in. Um, and so he goes; he does go out of his way to court Roosevelt, to, to court the people around Roosevelt like um, Harry Hopkins and a- a- Avril Harriman um, and he does see it as a, 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 a As a process, um, there's no doubt that at times he gets very frustrated by how slow it's going. After the Atlantic meeting with President Roosevelt in August 1941, um, he's hoping for a relatively quick declaration of war on the United States, uh, by the United States, and and yet nothing happens. Um, And, you know, he telegrams, he sent a telegram to Harry Hopkins, where he says, you know, really isn't there, you know, anything that can do, things are becoming desperate, you know, if we go another year and the Russians don't Hold, then it, then it may, may all be over. And at times he sends very frank telegrams um, to President Roosevelt which talk about the possibility of British defeat, which talk about the possibility of his own fall um, from office. Um, but he's aware, I think, that for the Americans to come in, um, the British have to be seen to be fighting and and, and to be resisting. And it's interesting that immediately after the fall of France, um, you know, he actually tells the um, British ambassador in the United States, Lord Lothian, um, that actually now we need to demonstrate
0: our resolve by our actions. Can I I ask you, so in in a way that uh, Churchill was obviously prescient on Hitler, as we come to the end of the war, he also predicts... Well, even before the Iron Curtain speech, he's very uh, concerned of of the Soviets and the Russians taking much of Eastern Europe. Those who defend Roosevelt say that, but at the Yalta meeting, there was, which is the the, the final really meeting of the, of the big three, Roosevelt. Uh, Churchill and Stalin, that there was really no alternative because the Soviets had 10 or 11 million troops in Eastern Europe. There wasn't much Roosevelt could do, and essentially they give him a pass on that front because that was just a reality on the ground. That Churchill may have been more aware of the problem, but there wasn't much that could be done. What is your feeling on on that, and whether whether you think Roosevelt made a mistake at Yalta and more could have been done to to keep Eastern Europe free? Well, then maybe. In that, I mean Churchill's
2: view on that would be um, that actually the problems started to emerge earlier um, and that if you if you were going to sort of stop the Russians um, or, 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 or stop is the wrong word but if you if, if you were going to, to sort of in, in, engage constructively um, to the Russians sort of dominating Eastern Europe, um, then that, that process needed to start earlier. And he tries to start it um, at the Tehran conference. And he gets very concerned at Tehran in November 1943 um, that, that Roosevelt is no longer really in, interested um, in meeting separately with the British to, to, to plan a coordinated line. What Roosevelt wants is to establish his own bilateral relationship with, with, with Stalin. And Churchill does start to get very worried about it at that point. Um What's interesting is it leads him ultimately to, to establish his own bilateral relationship with Stalin because he goes out in October 1944, um, he visits Stalin in Moscow and they sign the infamous percentages agreement in oh, which they oh, agree natural, on percentages right? of influence in, in Eastern Europe so that um, Churchill believes that Stalin has ceded him um, the right to, to, to intervene in Greece and, and in return um, you know, they're agreeing that they'll have joint influence in Romania and places like that. So, um, um, you know, there is all of this sort of real politic going on um, between the big three, but there's certainly increasing concern on Churchill's part um, that you are not getting um, um, independent representative governments being being established in, in, in these territories that the, that the Red Army is, is, is taking.
0: Do you think... Um that so do you think do you think Roosevelt was naive? I know it's outside of your area, but do you think Roosevelt was just naive, or do you think that that was just the reality is that, that he felt he did the best deal he could at the Yalta Conference? Well, I mean, again, you've got to to remember the sort of realities that that that, that, that people are working
2: um, under. Um, Roosevelt um, doesn't know how much longer the war is going to go on for. Um, He's very keen to get American troops out of Europe as quickly as possible um, and to get them into the Far East. He's also very keen to get Stalin's involvement in the Far East. And, of course, they haven't yet got the um, atomic bomb at this point. So you've got all of those other factors in play. He's also, I think, very aware um, that if you are going to have um, some form form of meaningful international settlement after the end of the Second World War, then the Russians are going to have to be part of that. So you're going to have to find some way of engaging with them. Okay. Um, and I think Roosevelt is probably also slightly skeptical um, about the British position, all of this, um, and the extent to which um, Churchill's desire to sort of um, to fight in the Balkans is really about preserving parts of the British
0: Empire. Alan, I- I'm sorry, I- I'm out of time, but thank you so much. What a- fascinating discussion and you covered it all so well and you handle all these complicated issues I threw at you and I I really appreciate your time and um, I look forward to being in touch with you myself and and, um, I thank you very much for coming on and for your time
2: It's an absolute pleasure, thank you very much for having me